Hello, this is your Hollywood Hustler with downtown Tony Brown, and you are joining us for the second of a two-part interview with legendary comedian Tom Dreesen. Tom Dreesen has opened and performed for legendary singers such as Liza Minnelli, Smokey Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra. You can click on all things Tom Dreesen on Tom Dreesen, that's D-R-E-E-S-E-N.com, and you can purchase Tom Dreesen's new book detailing his 50-year life in show business. Title still standing, available on Amazon. And you can follow Tony and Kenny on Twitter. Yes. Send us a link, send us a note, send us a picture. Being nice is optional, but we prefer that. At Tony and Kenny. Enjoy the show, everyone. And, and uh, how did people react to a, a black man and a, and a white man together? Were, were they were they ready for that? Were they stunned by that? I mean, was it, were the audiences uh, attuned to that, or did they did it take them a while to sort this out? Well, you know, you got to put it in context. In 1968, when we met, um, we had just lost two of our great leaders, Dr. King and Robert Kennedy. Uh, we'd just gone through the uh, 68 convention, which was a ride. Uh, there was demonstration in the streets, anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, drug revolution, sex revolution, riots, race riots. So we thought, what a good time to go out and do black and white comedy. <laughs> Right now, we talking about practice. Man, I look, I hear you. 
I, it's funny to me too. And, I mean, it's strange. It's strange to me too. But we talking about practice, man. We're not even talking about the game, the actual game, when it matters. We're talking about practice. How the hell can I make my teammates better by practicing? His <laughs> car runs, breaking ball in there for a strike. The only, the only positive I can say is that I do have hair. You have a lot. You have a great head of hair. That's more positive than I can say. <laughs> There's a bit Yeah, I do. I put it on every day. <laughs> I never knew that. Don't make somebody. Is that right? Yeah. Thank you. One one delivery. There's a bit of a down the right field line. Do you and Arnie buy your airpiece on the same place? <laughs> Himself, then he has not to say the 
appeared on the David Letterman show as many times as I appeared on the Tonight Show. <laughs> yeah, where'd that get you? <laughs> Career and control. Uh, during that, during your uh, stand-up period uh, in, in that in the late seventies at the Comedy Store, you know, you were a frontliner regarding the stand-up strike. And uh, like you know, and I watched a podcast a little while ago uh, with you and Dom uh, Irera. Just when you you know when you all when you all cross young comedians daily, and young comedians don't re realize that you know you Tom Dreesen and 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 others you know were the frontliners to making to, to seeing that comedians got paid on on these stages on these in these main rooms. Well, what happened was I, after. You know, I, I broke out at the comedy store. I was on stage every night with all these unknown comedians in those days. David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robert Williams, Michael Keaton, uh, Lane Boozler. You know, we, we were all un unknowns. And the girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. Uh, but um, it, it, when I launched off the Tonight Show, now I'm going on the road with Sammy and Terry Oliver. I still, when I came off the road, the first thing I did was go to the comedy store to work on new material, to... Uh, so I can go on the Tonight Show and all the other shows I was doing, Merv Griffin. Uh, and one of the wonderful things, after you hit on the Tonight Show, these other shows all were using comedians. Uh, Johnny Carson, uh, Merv Griffin, uh, Mike Douglas, Dinosaur, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bands. And so all these shows were there every night. And, and I was doing all those shows, so you've got to keep coming up with new and fresh material. So I'd take my tape recorder and go straight to the comedy store. And I'd be writing when I was on the road. I'd be writing when I was wake up in the morning and, you know, always writing new material. Um, and so I'd go to the comedy store. And every time I'd go to the comedy store, they had, Mitzi had a room there, the comedy store called The Original Room. Mm -hmm. And there was another section of that building that a guy named Mark LeBeau owned, and he had 50s music there and everything. And then he was going to open up a comedy room there, but uh, Mitzi got rid of that idea. <laughs> and, you know, she ended up buying the other side of the building, and she had the main room. Now, the main room seated 400 people. So Mitzi would get Jackie Mason. He took the door. She took the whiskey. She took the drinks. Um, Rodney Dangerfield stars, they would come in there, and whatever the door was, whatever the cover charge was, $25, dollars $40, $40, whatever it was, they got that. The artist got that, and the uh, and, and Mitzi took the uh, alcohol, which, by the way, is very profitable, you know, with two-drink minimum and stuff like that. Sure. So anyhow, so but we always went to the original room. 120 seats or something like that. So I come off the road one time, and I signed up for Times, and I go into the original room. They said, you're on at 8.30 or something. They said, oh, Tom, you're not here. You're in the main room. I said, the main room? I go in the main room, and there's 400 and something seats, and it's Jay Leno, David Letterman, Robin Williams, um, Elaine Boozler, me. You know, the room was packed, you know. Um, and, you know, so I'm on stage. I'm thinking, wow, I feel like I'm back in Vegas in this big room. You know, I'm breaking in my new hotel. Still not thinking. You know, afterward, I go to Cantor's, where all of us hung out, this uh, deli that all the comedians hung out till 3, 4 in the morning. And we're in there, and all the comics, and in comes Jay Leno, and he's going, hey, man, this is BS. This is really BS. He said, uh, Rodney gets the door, uh, Jackie Mason gets the door, these other artists get the door. Maybe it took five of us to fill the room, but, you know, shouldn't we get something? I'm still, I'm out, I'm on the road. I'm making six figures. I'm serving with Sammy Davis. Here. Right. I'm doing great. You know, my life has changed. But I listen. These are my friends. Mm -hmm. And I listen. They decide they're going to have a meeting. I go to the meeting because of my friends. I'm off the road. And it was chaos. You get 120 comedians in a room. They're all talking at the same time. There's other chaos. They only decide one thing. I have another meeting. I go to the next meeting. It's even worse chaos. And then my JC background, being in the JCs, I got up and I took over the meeting. I said, look, 
I know Robert's rules of order. I know how to conduct a meeting. I said, let me just conduct a meeting. And I got them organized, you know, and put in form of motions and second motion. And once you've got those brilliant minds organized, they were a force to be reckoned with. I mean, really a force to be reckoned with. And we got committees and subcommittees. And now I'm, I, I go to Natina, she had a committee, it's like, you get paid, and she doesn't want to pay them. And it go back and forth. I, and, and I said, as long as you're charging a cover charge, you know, I, we thought the term cover charge meant cover the cost of entertainment. Found out later on that isn't really the, what it was, but nonetheless, we thought that we should, the comedians should be paid. And Mitzi just was adamant. She simply was not going to pay the comedians. And she said it's a, 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 like a learning ground and so forth and so on. And, you know, I just was representing them. You know, I'm doing good. But we, night after night, we, I, I brought other comedians in. We had meetings with her. And she just wouldn't budge. She simply wasn't going to pay it. And I'd keep bringing back the information. Comedians said, finally, they decide they want to go on strike. Now, comedians on strike, you go, oh, my God. You know, this is, and there's a great book called I'm Dying Up Here by William Needlecedar. He covered that yeah. perfectly. If you ever want to know what that strike was about. Now, meanwhile, remember, when I sat out in showbiz, there were no comedy clubs in America. And then there was 550 of them. Mm. There was three in Tulsa, Oklahoma. All of a sudden, comedy clubs, you know. Boom. In all over the country, and a lot of them were not paying, and some were paying, but very not very much. So anyhow, uh, but 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 not the comedy, so it wasn't going to pay, and that was the mothership. So it, it took it took a long time. Finally, the comics voted to go on strike. The last thing I wanted to do was go on strike, because I got a problem that I've had since I was a kid. I don't want to fight, but when I do, I want to win. Yeah, you know, hey. I boxed when I was in the service. I I, I don't want to fight, but when I do, I want to win. Uh, my friend Tutu Bracken back in, in the Harvey, he used to always say, he said, I don't want to fight, Reese. He said, because I'll whip his ass. I'll whip his ass. But you know what he's going to do? He's coming back tomorrow. I'm going to have to whip his ass again. And you know what he's going to do? He'll come back the next day. I'm going to have to whip his ass. As soon as he heals, he said, so I don't want to fight him because he won't quit. Now, he said that always in jest, but I always, I, I like that because that's how I am, my nature. So I don't want to, I don't want to lose once we get in the fight. So once we got in this fight with her, now, I'm, I'm not going to lose. Meanwhile, I had to turn down over $50,000 of work with Sandy Davis Jr. I called Sandy. I said, Sandy, this is what's going on. He said, you go ahead, babe. You're always with me when it's over. You're doing the right thing. So we got in a fight. It lasted almost eight weeks. And I thought, I, 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 I to, sometimes regret it to this day. I, I became like Jimmy Hoffa. You know, I'm, I'm now the, 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 the union leader, which I wasn't. Right. But I just was trying to keep the comedians together. And we finally won. We finally won. And, and the strike was over, and the comedians got paid, and, and it changed comedy across the land. In London, people were sending us telegrams, thanks to you guys, we're getting paid now in a comedy club in London. In New York, they weren't paying at the Improv in New York, and, and within 24 hours, they were paying the comedians in New York. So it changed the course of comedy, and the clubs around the country, the comedy club, clubs that were paying very little, if... Now they could, their argument was, come here, we'll give you something, 150 bucks a week, 200 bucks a week, we'll give you something. You, you work the comedy store for free, come here, we'll at least give you a couple hundred bucks. Well, now that argument, you could stay in L.A. and maybe make that kind of money. Right. So the, the comedy clubs had to increase their pay for the community. So it, it was a long, hard struggle, and, and, uh, and, it's, and also a kid committed suicide named Steve Lebetkin. He had called in for times four weeks after the strike was over and he couldn't get times and, and he was a, a, a good comedian you know who knows what he might have been but you know he just went on top of the continental hyatt house next door to the comedy store 
and he wrote a suicide note. My name is Steve Levetkin. I used to work at the comedy store, and he jumped off the Continental Hyatt House toward the comedy store and, and died. And, and, and uh, uh, anyhow, some real tragedies. After that, two years in a row, uh, on an anniversary of his death, everybody thinks it was his girlfriend. She had a dummy laid on the spot where he landed with a, sign, a dummy with a sign around his neck saying, my name is Steve Levetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. And uh, it was a set. And I never went back to the comedy store because I promised those guys that I wouldn't go back until they all went back. And anyhow, but I did go back just recently. Mike Binder did a, a special on the comedy store, and he, he directed it, and he asked me, would you come back? And Richie's son, Peter Short, called me. And I said, okay. And I went back after 40-something years and went on stage. It was strange. I went on stage one night, and, and I did it, and I'm glad, and it's over. You know. But it was a real ugly time in history where, to this day, there are some comedians that don't talk to the other comedians who crossed the picket line. See, 19 people crossed the picket line, 18 guys and one girl. If they would have not crossed, it would have been over in 24 hours. In 24 hours. But they felt loyal to Mitzi, and for whatever the reasons were, they crossed, and that kept the place open for, for weeks, you know, kept, kept open while we were on strike picketing in front. It was a weird to think this comedian's on strike. I mean, media, we had Steve Lustin in charge of our committee, our, our, our committee on media. He got everybody out there. All the sound trucks were out there. So it was, it got known all over the world that comedians were on strike, you know. It was kind of a strange time. Comedians on strike. What a joke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I got it. Tell you, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that. Again, before you joined the meeting, Tony and I were uh, lauding your accomplishments and singing your praises a bit. Uh, so the two things I want to thank you for: one, you know, you mentioned of all of the uh, the accolades and the shows you've played and the tours you've been on, and your biggest takeaway from it all, in my opinion, seems to be that you had some sort of an impact on race relations back in the day. I, I also want to thank you for being there to change the comedy game as well and get those comics paid and stand firm with that strike. You, you touched on a almost a mastermind principle there with Napoleon Hill where you got all these genius minds together, but you got them organized for a common goal and a common good. And that seems to be the thing that needs to happen in this country at the moment, obviously, a little bit of unity. But anytime you're trying to reach a goal and make change, there seems to be a need for common good or common goal and organization that I just, wow. I just want to say thanks for the impact you've had on the game over the years that you've put in. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was in the military four years. I, mean, I, I always was, I always felt, I always wanted to be a leader more than I wanted to be a follower. But I also knew in order to be a good leader, you had to have been a good follower. You know, I, I, I knew that, mm -hmm. you, you, you know, that you had to know what you, you, you know, that you know, leadership is, is an interesting thing, you know, that there are people who just simply can't make a decision. And if you can't make a decision, you can't be a leader, you know, that whether it's right or wrong. You know, there, there are heads of corporations that make 
maybe a hundred decisions in a year. Fifty of them may be wrong and fifty may be right. They weren't put there because they make all right decisions. They were put there because they have the ability to make a decision. decision. Mm -hmm. And that's the key. The key is I know a lot of people that just simply can't make a decision. And I'll tell you, if you're in the military, you're sapped. You, you better not be a leader because you, you have to make a choice sometimes. Split second. Boom. Or you're dead. Or the people around you are dead. You know, and, and so, uh, you know, again, it's there's a lot of people that are followers because they can't make decisions. You know, I didn't want to be a person like that, especially about my own life. I mean, I wanted to make decisions on my life and, and where I was going to go. I wasn't going to wander aimlessly the rest of this life of mine, you know, and end up in bars like my dad. I would have I would have ended up being a drunk back in Harvey, you know, because unfulfilled. When you feel unfulfilled, you know, um, you know, what is it I'm here for? When you feel unfulfilled, you usually go to, like I would have gone to, like my dad, drinking beer till the wee hours in the morning. You know? mm -hmm. And I did do enough of that in my earlier days, for sure. Now, but it's the decision you make, a leader or a follower. Now, I, I, I want to piggy on that leader thing because, you know, interesting topic you brought up with Dom was about stand-up comedians and, and the lack of fathers. Uh, you know, I mean, and you and you had asked around with you know various comedians whether it was Don Rickles and so on about their relationship with their fathers and maybe what was said, what wasn't said, uh, if they got a hug, and and just the majority of comedians like our country, you know, you know, lack a father. Well, it's interesting, you know, with Don Myrera, what you're talking about is is that. I, I, one time I was going to do an article about maybe what all, something all stand-up comedians have in common. And so I started asking in those days, Don Rickles, Johnny Carson, I asked uh, David Letterman and Jay Leno and Robin Williams, and I asked uh, 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 George Miller and Johnny Dark and all my friends that were comedians, I'd just say, <clears throat> did your father love you? Some didn't have fathers. I'd say, did your father ever hug you, put his arms around you and hug you and say, I love you? I couldn't find one that that happened, not one. I finally had one who said, my father loved me. I said, oh, I believe that, but did he tell you? Well, no, he wasn't that kind of guy. I said, did he ever put his arms up? Oh, well, no, but I know he loved me because he'd go to work. I said, that wasn't what I asked you. My, my point was, now, I may have do the survey with bartenders and find the same damn thing. I don't know. So, But I think sometimes... You might. Uh, you that, might. That, that <laughs> was love, you know? But now, when you bring that up, you brought up a passion of mine, Tony. Yeah. My charity in Chicago is called the Illinois Fatherhood Initiative. Mm -hmm. that's, that's my charity in Chicago. And the reason, you know, 77% of all teenage crimes are created by fatherless teenagers. You know, uh, three out of every 10 children born in America, three out of every 10 white children born in America have no father in the home. Five out of every 10 Hispanic have no father in the home. And seven out of every 10 African American have no father in the home. Where the hell did this begin? Because it wasn't there before. So I did the research and did the research and did the research. In Harvey, Illinois, in 1960. Four percent of the children being born were being born without a father in the home. Today, seventy-two percent. Where did that happen? In 1964, the war on poverty, well-intentioned, well-intentioned war on poverty. 1964, the civil, after Lyndon Johnson passes the war on poverty. If you have one baby out of wedlock, we're going to give you $250 a month. If you have two babies out of wedlock from two different men, we can give you $500 a month. If you have three babies at $750 from three different men. By the way, if one of those guys is living with you, cohabitating, you get nothing. You just, the government just became the father of your children. When I grew up in Harvey, wherever you went, 
in an Italian neighborhood, an Irish neighborhood, a black neighborhood, a, a, a whatever neighborhood, a Mexican neighborhood. If a girl got pregnant, the mantra was all through the neighborhood. You marry her if you get a girl pregnant. The men of that community would come out and get you and say, Tony, you're going to marry that girl. You said, no, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to marry her. You say, okay, but you're going to take her of that child because if you don't, we have to. So my mother, when I was 13 years old, she said to me, you get a girl pregnant, you'll stand by her. I said, mom, I'm 13. I don't care. You get a girl pregnant, you'll stand by her. That was the mantra in every neighborhood. Right. We were more afraid of our fathers than we were of the police. Mm -hmm. We were more afraid of our fathers than we were the police. Gucci Nicholson, who I talk about in my book, was one of the toughest guys I ever met in my life. A wonderful guy, quiet guy, but he didn't take any guff from anybody. Black friend of mine, Gucci. We're coming home from setting pins in a bowling alley one night. The cops pulled us over. What are you doing out so late? Setting pins. Okay, boys, get in the car. We'll give you right home. Gucci said, please, officer. Please do not take me home in the squad car. You'll never see me on the street again. This is a tough kid. He said, if my father sees me come home in a squad car, there's hell to pay. And, and, and he was more afraid of his father than he was of the police. If a kid was roaming the streets in the black neighborhood I grew up in, mm -hmm. or in a Polish neighborhood, or an Irish neighborhood, any neighborhood, and he was stealing curses and being a thug, the men of that community went out and grabbed him and took him home to his father. Do you know what your son is doing? The men policed their own community. And then there were no men in the community. And you say, how did this all happen on the south side of Chicago? It ain't rocket science. You've got a grandmother with four grandchildren trying to protect them from the gangs, and she's got a broomstick in the gang, got an AK-47. Who's going to win that fight? But no one will ever face the truth because it's the politicians. They screwed up. They, have to, they had to come out and say, America, we meant well. Our predecessors meant well. But we failed the community. Now, let's turn this all around again. Let's turn this around. Let's get back to the morals of, of, of our community. We need fathers in the home. Mm -hmm. Tupac, Tupac said, said that, that, you know, I had a great mom. I had a great bring up, but I would have been a better man had I had a father. Because only a man can teach a boy how to be a man. Uh, and that's, that's my passion. That's why I, why I my father to initiative is, is my charity. Because I know the truth. And I'll tell the truth. Mm -hmm. But the politicians won't. No, you've, you've lived the truth. You've lived the truth. A lot of them haven't lived the truth. I mean, I mean, I've lived that. I've lived that life. And I want to mention, you know, in addition to, you know, to this worthwhile charity that you're a part of, the charity that you were a part of before for your sister, for your, you know, dear sister Darlene for uh, multiple sclerosis. I want to, I definitely want to mention that because as a kid growing up in Chicago, I, w I would see your ads for WGN promoting that, and and I, you know, and I and I totally want to applaud you for that. So when you, when you made that, when you made that decision that day in that church, and and when you made that prayer of what you were going to do, you've done. You know, you, you have. You have given to charities. You have worked for charities. Your word, your word is your bond. God answered my prayer, so I kept my promise. You know, I kept my promise. I said, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll do charities. You know, and going to my sister, my sister Darlene, we had eight kids in our family, as we said earlier. Darlene was 18 months older than me. Because both my parents are out at night drinking, and, and, and my mom was a bartender, Darlene had to watch over us kids. She was like a surrogate mom. She was only 18 months older than me. That poor kid had no childhood whatsoever. She'd go to church six days a week. 
um, with me when I was an altar boy and everything, but she'd help me when I'd sell newspapers. And if I was shining shoes, sometimes she'd wait for me outside the bars. And she was to hold my hand when I was a little boy crossing the streets. I, I don't remember anything my childhood without her. She was the sweetest, kindest human being I ever met in my life. If Darlene is not in heaven, there's no heaven as far as I'm concerned. There's, but she was a sweet person who one day started to live after all of uh, she got out of home and she was stricken with multiple sclerosis and we didn't know what it was. She was like 24 years old. Anyhow, she went from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair and she never complained. She never complained. And then one day I was back in Chicago opening for Frank Sinatra at Chicago Theater and I went south to see her and her husband was mowing the lawn out in front and I, he said, Darlene's inside and I went inside and Darlene had, was in a wheelchair. She had slumped over and could not right herself. So she was in pain. She'd been like that for a long time. And I righted her and I got her straight. And Darlene, this sweet, kind, loving woman who never said anything wrong about anybody, she turned to me and she said, don't you come in here ever again talking to me about positive mental attitude. Don't do that. She knew I was a motivation speaker and I talked about it. And she'd say, don't do that. And don't ever come in here talking to me about God ever again. You know me all my life. What did I do to God that God would punish me so severely? Come on. You have all these answers all the time. What did I do to God that God would punish me like this? Come on, Tommy, tell me. And, and I was dumbfounded. I, I said, I, 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 I don't know, darling. I, I don't have an answer for that. And moments later, she started to cry. And she said, forgive me. I lost my faith. I lost my faith, Tommy. I'm so sorry. I said, if anybody has a right to lose their faith, you do. But now I went back to California, and I was jogging. One day, I used to run like a mile every day. I'm jogging. I said, what can I do to show her not only I care but that others care about her and all those people with multiple sclerosis. So I said, I'm going to run 26 miles. I had never run 26 miles. I never run two miles. <laughs> I said, I'm going to run 26 miles, and I'll call it 26 miles for Darlene. And people will pledge money for every mile I run and will raise money for multiple sclerosis. And then I went back to my JC chapter in Harvey and asked them to sanction, and they said they got behind me. And I started asking my celebrity friends, Smokey Robinson, Tony Danza, Frankie Avalon, um, Eddie Marinero, uh, Connie Stevens, uh, I, I could go on, I, I will forget people, Betty Thomas from Hill Street Blues. Betty! Oh. Yeah. I, I mean, all these, all these stars would come back to me, back to Harvey with me, you know, back to Chicago, and they would run part of the way with me, a mile, two miles, a block. Smokey Robinson's the only one who ran all 26 miles with me. <laughs> and, uh, and one year, in Chicago Heights, he collapsed for the year, he, he ran it the year later. He, after 20 miles, it was hot and humid. He collapsed after 20 miles, and and uh, at the press conference that day, I was going to change it to a 10k run. And he came in with a towel on his head. He said, "No, promise me you'll do it one more year. Promise me you'll do the 26." And he came back the next year and ran all 26 miles with me. And I gave him an award when I snuck up on stage. He didn't know I was there at the Erie Crown Theater, and I had this award thing. But I told my, I told the audience, my mother told me when I was a little boy, if you ask a friend to go a mile for you, and he goes two miles. You got a real friend. I said, I asked a friend to go a mile, and he went 26 miles. You know, what kind of friend is that, you know? And I, I love Smokey. He just called me yesterday and left me a great message. But anyhow, uh, so that's that was called 26 miles for, for Darlene. And, and one day at Park Forest, we culminated the run in Park Forest, and there was an Illinois Philharmonic Orchestra there. And all these stars that I just named went up on stage. And they had a song written specially for Darlene called Don't Give Up. It was for Darlene and all the other M MS patients, MS people that have MS. And they, Darlene had to come out in a van. They 
drove a van out there, and all there's 30,000 people out there, and the Illinois Philharmonic with all these people, stars on stage, and they opened up the van, and they sang the Darlene. And the audience had been taught to sing the chorus, don't give up, don't give up, we got fade on the run. So they were singing to Darlene. And I told Darlene, I said, you remember one time you said to me, why you? And I didn't know the answer, but I know because of you, 30,000 people today are singing. And they're singing to you. She said, no, Tommy, not because of me, because of you. I said, no, because of all the things we learned in church. What you sow, you shall reap. Cast your bread. All the love you gave me and my brothers and sisters is now coming back to you. And that's what it's all about, you know. Uh, Darlene passed away not long after that. And uh, and uh, she, again, like I say, Darlene's not in heaven. There is no heaven. Because she just was as good a human being as I've ever met in my life, you know. Wow, that's um, a bit heavier than we wanted to go with this show, so thank you very much, <laughs> I can handle it. I don't know about you. That's, that's awe-inspiring, seriously. I, I, okay, I'm going to shift the gears so that we can stay rolling down the tracks. I'd be remiss. If I didn't ask you about your time spent on the set of the greatest film ever thrown on celluloid, in my opinion, Spaceballs. <laughs> no. You know, I got that part in that movie. I had just gotten a divorce, and I'm dating this really hot chick. Really, really hot. Her name is Trish. She was tall. And you know who fixed me up with it? You guys are too young, maybe, but... Maybe not Tony, but Tim Reitman, who was with the... Oh, I know Tim. Oh, yes, yes, Tim Reitman. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Tim was a buddy. Jimmy McMahon, all those guys are buddies of mine that that I just love them. By the way, the Chicago Bears always helped me with the day for Darlene. Yeah, right. Jimmy McMahon, all those guys, he would come and run with me. Uh, uh, Jimbo Covert, Tim Reitman, all the guys. Emery Moorhead, I I love them all. But anyhow, but uh, Tim Reitman fixed me up with this girl, and she's just as hot as she can be. She's just gorgeous. (laughs) and uh, she, she's tall, and it's my first date with her. And I take her to Santa Monica, and we're going to go to this restaurant, but they weren't ready with our reservation. So we were waiting at the bar, and Mel Brooks happened to be in the, in the restaurant. And I'm sitting down. He couldn't see me, but he sees this tall, hot chick. <laughs> so Mel walks all the way around, and he's walking around just to take a better look at her, and he sees me. Typical he said, hey, Mel. Because I met him. You know, Carl Reiner had introduced me to him. said, he may say, Teresa, how are you doing? I said, oh, Mel. I said, this is my uh, a girlfriend, Trish. And, and, of course, Trish was happy to meet Mel Brooks, you know. Mm-hmm. Mel Brooks. And, and, and Mel says to me, Dreesen, what are you doing Monday? This was on a Friday. Oh. He said, Dreesen, what are you doing Monday? <laughs> I said, what do you want me to do on <laughs> Well, he said, I'm doing a, a, a film. I said, I'll do it. He said, wait a minute. I didn't even finish what I was saying. I said, I don't care. I'll, I'll sweep the floor. What do you want me to do? He said, well, it's only got a couple lines. I said, fine. I don't care. What do you and you know the scene, uh, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you the funny part, I get to do, do the scene. In the movie Spaceballs, I'm killed by a can of shaving cream. Uh, I'm a guard, and I'm shaving, and I'm thinking that coming in the door is my fellow guardsman, but it wasn't. It's the lead in, in the film Spaceballs. And when he, I said, guards, I'm, we're not a barrio, and I'm yelling, guards, guards. And he draws with a ring, he draws this can of shaving cream to his hand, and he sprays it in my mouth. It's whipped cream, right? And I die. And the camera keeps on. Well, the problem is that can of whipped cream had sat like in a window or something because it was sour. Uh, and oh my God. Now, when he sprayed that in my mouth, I hit the floor. I thought I was going to die. Now, they're still rolling. I'm going, 
mm-hmm. you know, I'm supposed to be dead. Now when Mel yelled, cut, I bolted from the bathroom. I got my head. <laughs> Mel came in there and he said, Teresa, are you all right? He thought I was nervous about the scene. I said, Mel, for God's sake, what was in that can? He took it. He went, oh, Jesus, sour milk, you know. We had to shoot the scene a couple more times, but I was really bitter. Anyhow, yeah, that's a, that's a long answer to a short question. So that's how I got the part in the movie. That is just, those are the stories we look for on your Hollywood Hustler, ladies and gentlemen. The backstory. Well, okay, so you've got the space balls. Now, how did you get your, what, two appearances on uh, Soul Train? Well, Soul Train, you know, uh, first of all, Don Cornelius uh, uh, was a friend from Chicago. Don Cornelius used to show on Channel 26. Yes. You know, in the meantime... I wish I could tell you what really, how I really got it, because I don't want to use the word. But <laughs> when he just calls me one time, and he, he, I'm at home, and you know, Don, I always say, Don Cornelius, this, he was as, as laid back a cat as you ever met in your life. Just, I said, this is Don Cornelius having the greatest orgasm that he ever had. Mm. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was about an emotional guy. He just was as low-keyed as yeah. I in my life. And, but, you know, he calls me one time, and I'm at home. He got my head home, no phone number. I knew him in Chicago. He said, hey, uh, man, uh, my partner, and he gave his name. He said, my partner uh, said he saw a white boy on the Tonight Show talking about, and I ain't going to say what he said. <laughs> he said, and making it funny. And I said to him, I don't even know white, one white boy in America that could do that. His name is Tom Gleason. He said, yeah, that's his name. He said, so anyhow, my partner wants me to get you on Soul Train. I said, well, yeah, Don, you know, but, yeah. but that was his reason for getting me on there because his partner saw me, not Don. But Don said, well, you know, because, you know, the, the, the first thing, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, okay? Now, I... Uh, that's what I talked about when I first started doing comedy. You're right. supposed to talk about where you came from, what you, you know, and maybe what might be different about you than everybody else. Well, being the only white kid on all black basketball team was 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 something different, you know. And 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 um, and I, I worked all black audiences before I ever worked white audiences, you know. Worked all black audiences. So, but I knew the neighborhood. I, I knew that I knew, that, you know. I, I'll never forget. People used to say to me all the time. Do black people laugh at your material? I saw you on the Irv Griffin show or the Tonight Show. Do black people laugh at your material? I got so tired of it, I went and did an album in front of an all-black audience, and every time they'd say that, I'd whip out a CD and say, give me twelve ninety nine and go find out for yourself, you know. Because you know, here's my point. Whenever somebody brings that up, you know, well, you know, it's an all-Jewish audience and an all-Italian audience, I always say to them, what color is laughter? There it is. Funny is What's funny. What's the color of laughter? Ooh, there it is. Yes. Really? Number of laughter, you know, you know. First of all, we all have moms and dads. We all have brothers and sisters. We all go to school. We all go to, you know, and, you know, you know. You, the, the wonderful thing is how comedy brings people together. You see a Jewish comedian on stage and he's talking all about growing up Jewish, and you're thinking, I'm not Jewish, but you know what? My dad did stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my brother did. We find out through humor how much we have in common. You know, uh, I mean, you know. Again, this is. Well, I mean, well, 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 I mean, one of my favorite comedians is Richard Lewis. <laughs> I mean, and you know, and and I was, you know, hooked on him as a teenager. I mean, about the same time I let, there's a cluster of you I latched on to in my teenage years, and and a lot of you are still with, and I love that. But, but it it has no it has no color. 
I mean, it doesn't. I mean, if anything, it's, it, you know, it's medicinal. I mean, which means it's for everybody. Well, when, aside from that, I always say, whenever, whenever people ask me that, I, I'll say, it's so, uh, comedy isn't who I am. It's who you are. You know, because sometimes I'll say, tell me your favorite comedian. You know, sometimes people love slapstick. That makes them laugh. Some people like monologists. Some people like whatever. So comedy isn't who I am. It's who you are. You know, if you think for one second as a community you're going to make everybody like what you do, or any artist, Sammy Davis Jr. had the most wonderful thing hanging in his dressing room that he couldn't pay heed to, but it was beautiful. It said, I don't know the meaning of success, but I do know the meaning of failure. It's when I try to make everybody love me. You can't do that, Kenny. You can't do that, Tony. You can't make everybody love you. I don't care who you are. You can't make everybody love you. You know, you, you, if, if there's 300 people in the audience... And you got a standing ovation. I guarantee you, 250 of those thought you deserved that standing ovation. 30 got up because everybody else got up, and 21 to get the hell out of it. <laughs> you can't make everybody love you if you're a bartender, a truck driver, a bricklayer, and especially if you're an entertainer. Wayne Dyer, uh, who is a motivation speaker and wrote many books, him and I did a show together one time. He said, 50% of all the people you meet in your life aren't going to like you. Not, not for. Anything you said or done, they're not going to actively campaign against you. Mm -hmm. They're just going to say, well, I don't like the way he looks or she looks. They're not going to like you. 50%. So if you live in a town of 500 people all your life, 250 people probably won't, won't like you. If you're a comedian, millions of people won't like you. <laughs> millions of people. figure you know that you know that you were connected to Don Rickles I mean I mean for a lot of us Don Rickles legend genius but for you know there's that there's that percentage where he's mean <laughs> I, mean, I mean king of mean but but you know what I would love after every after every act after after every set the love he would give the love, I mean, especially during the Dean Martin roast. I mean, the love he would give the roastee. I mean, I mean, you could cry, you could cry more after you after you cry these tears of laughter. Politically correct police will destroy comedy, and they're doing everything they can right now. Politically correct police. I've got a political rant. You can see it on the internet. You know, but I basically say I'm talking to four comedians from back in Chicago, James Wesley Jackson and Bill Gorgo and. And uh, some of the guys, and, and they've got, it's on, it's on the internet, you can get it, it's called Tom Dreesen Rants About Politically Correctness. And I say, who are these people? We don't know who these people are. You know, they're telling you what you can say. You know, who, you know, millions of people died so that we have the right in our nation, the First Amendment. We can say whatever we want to say. You don't have to let, you don't have to listen to us. You can turn us off. You can Absolutely. Walk out the door. Yeah. But we have a right in this country. Men and women died so that we could say whatever we want to say. Now, that's what the First Amendment is about. Now, these politically correct police, who are they? They keep telling us what we can't say, now, or what we can say. I said, we know who the Democrats are, we know who the Republicans are, we know who the Independents are, we know who the Moose, the Quality Elks. For God's sake, we know who the Ku Klux Klan is, but we don't know who you are, and we keep 
apologizing to you, and we don't know who you are. So I want to end it with this. I say to all you politically correct, please, kiss my black ass. <laughs> yes! Yes! Oh my goodness, yes, I'm not the only white man that says kiss my black ass. Thank you, Tom Dreesen, for drilling it home. So that makes two I'm, of you now. That makes two of you now. I did that, I did that in, in, in my act for years ago. I had a whole routine about. about I, 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 routine. I can't remember the bit, but I used to do a bit about. But about um, the brothers, I say, the, you know, the brothers I knew up, grew up with, they know how to say that. You know, kiss my... Oh, yeah. Man. You know, kiss my black ass. Kiss my folks, white folks, white folks. Well, just kiss my ass, Charlie. It doesn't have that effect. I said, when the brothers tell you to kiss an ass, they want you to know the color of that ass, too. They want you to know that, that ass. They, like, like they're going to drop their pants and it might be an orange ass in there, you know. from you and you 
beat the hell out of me. Why would I want to tell a story like that? I said, 32 million fans will be chasing me through the airport. He said, I don't care. It's a better story. And that's what we're going to tell from now. I said, now, two weeks go by. He calls me. He said, Tom, do you know the governor of Illinois? I said, no, I met him, but I don't know him. He said, well, my, I said, why? He said, my wife, Regina, has a friend in Chicago whose son is an adult and he has autism. And all the adult autistic men and women, they have a, a plot of land where they, they plant flowers and, I mean, I'm sorry, they plant corn and beans and tomatoes. And when it comes into fruition, they give it to the homeless. And now the state evidently is trying to take that property away. And I'd like to talk to somebody. I said, gee, I don't know the governor, but I do know John Cullerton, the Senate Majority Leader, yeah. is a friend. And I said, I could call him. He said, I said, let me call you back. And I called John. John said, oh, Tom, we're taking care of that. Tell Dave not to worry about it. There's a certain statute, and we're doing this, that, and the other. I said, John, can I have Dave call you, and, and you could explain it to him because you, you explain it better. He said, oh, sure. Well, you can give my number. And I said, oh, by the way, John, when you talk to Dave, tell him the reason you're helping him is because Dreesen beat the hell out of him in the parking lot. <laughs> Well, said, well, you okay. used to be a boxer. You used to be a boxer, Tom. You know, and they're afraid of that. They're afraid. So, so then, yeah. So then, yeah. John Coulton says, "Okay, now ten minutes go by. My phone rings. It's Letterman. I go, hello. He said, didn't I tell you that's a better story? It's fun to be right. Letterman's like, it's fun to be right. Oh my goodness." And, and, and I and I and I can and I can see the point. I mean, I can see him on the phone, and I mean, and I and I see the gesture that Dave gives. I can totally see it. Uh, before... He's a great guy. We, we've had a, a friendship from oh god, it's it's 40, 45, 46 years we've been friends, and we're totally opposite. It isn't like Dave and I got all this in common. We're totally opposite. Although you know, we played basketball together. I had a basketball team called the Comedy Store Bombers. I was captain of the basketball team. And, you know, we had Jimmy Walker and, and, and David Letterman and Tim Reed and, and our comedy team, Roger and Roger. And oh, Roger and Roger, yeah. We, we had a great uh, a great basketball team. We were really a good team. But And Dave and I played racquetball together. You know, we, we, we had that. But, but he's totally opposite me. I'm a street kid and he's not. You know, uh, he, he went to college and I'm a high school dropout. I, I, I went in the service at 17 and I got a high school diploma from the Navy and I went to junior college nights, but I, I read every book on positive mental attitude I could find. I read hundreds of books on the powers of the mind because I came from such a negative background that I wanted to change that, you know. And, uh, but anyhow, uh, so, but, but Dave and I, we just hit it off. Uh, a, a guy was interviewing me the other day and he said, three of the most private people show business has ever known, Frank Sinatra, Clint Eastwood, and David Levin. And you're good friends with all three of them. How How in the world? Did, why are you friends with them? Why do they like you? I said, I think because I make them laugh. I don't know. How did you, I, how, how did you get the role on Learning with the, with the Curve? Trouble with the Curve? Or trouble with the Curve. Learning with the Curve. Trouble with the Curve. I mean, it's a baseball movie. Yeah. I mean, that should be enough. Yeah. Everybody thinks because Clint Eastwood was my friend that he just cast me in that role. I had to go read for that part. I had to go read for that part. Like, you know, but Clint doesn't do any. He, 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 but he's my buddy. But he, but he wanted to do a scene with me, and, and we had so much fun with that scene. I'll tell you how funny. Now, if you remember the movie Trouble with the Curve, Clint Eastwood plays a baseball scout who's losing his eyesight. He's got um, macular degeneration. Mm. And so he's now terrified because he's losing his eyesight. He's having one. Now, the scene is he just came from the doctor, and now he goes to the corner tavern, and he's got this information, and he's not in a good mood. And the, the bartender said, how's the world treating you, Dave? He said, like, shit, Jimmy, like, shit, you know. 
and I walk up to him, I'm in a bar, and I said, my name, character's name is Rock, and I said, Tim, I said, hey, Gus, how, uh, uh, what's his name? I said, hey, Gus, how about a game of Aquino? He said, not today, Rock. I said, I come on one game. He said, I said, no, you know what no means when somebody tells you no? Huh? Do you understand what no means? I said, okay, okay, when crawled up your ass. He said, old age, and he walks out of the bar. Now, we did the scene. I rehearsed my lines. He rehearses. Boom, we nailed it. Now, I asked him, could we do one more scene? I want to take it on Letterman. And I gave him the punchline. Now, I took the scene on Letterman. Letterman showed what I just told you. Letterman said, oh, that's nice. You, you, you and your friend did a scene in a movie. I said, yeah, but he felt that just losing his eyesight wouldn't make his character that bad. He needed something deeper, more provocative to make him angry, really angry. So he said, oh, you did another one. I said, yeah, we did the second take. Now, the second take, I said, uh, how about a game of Kino tonight? That's, he said, not today, Brock. I said, oh, come on, one game. He said, I said, no. You know what no means when somebody tells you, don't you understand what the hell no means? I said, okay, okay. What crawled up your ass? He said, I had to watch a David Letterman show last night. <laughs> 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 and the audience roared. The audience roared. And David, David loved it. He said, you should have kept that part in the movie, you know. <laughs> and by the way, for Clint to do that, Clint, it shows you what a friend he is of mine, because Clint doesn't waste film. Right, right. Oh, yes. He's a professional man. No, you, when he gets the scene, pal, you got it. Mm -hmm. and when he, he knows he's got a, a great story. Um, what's his name in the movie Levectus? Uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon in the movie Levectus that Clint, you know, about the South African yeah. rugby team. Uh, but uh, Clint directed that film. And, and Matt, Matt Damon tells the story. He said, they did this scene, and Clint said, okay, we're moving on. He never yells cut. Right. He never yells action. He says, action scares horses. You know, he said, he said he never yells cut. He just goes, we're moving on. So Clint said, okay, we're moving on. And Matt Damon said, Clint, Clint, could, could we do this scene one more time? And Clint went like this. He said, yeah, but we'd just be wasting everybody's time. And he moved on. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, there's so many stories with Clint, but just one of those, I mean, you know, he, he's very chill on set when he's directing, you know, minimal takes when he likes what he likes, move on, I mean, get it done, you know, get the shot, get it in the vault, let's go. You're talking about a guy who has directed maybe, I'm trying to think, probably maybe 55 films. Yeah. All 55 films came in on time, on schedule, on budget. And some even under budget. So you want to hire a guy like that? You're damn right you do. When you hear about people in you know, Scorsese, you tell them, you got $100 million to do the film, it's going to take $300 million to finish that film. You know? <sighs> yeah. But and Clint's not like that. Actors, he, 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 he lets actors act. You know, he's a director. He, he would rarely ever tell an actor how to act. He might say, let's move the scene to this attitude or something like that. You know, but he's, he's really, he lets you do your job and, and he knows his job. And he, has, he keeps the same crew around him as much as possible so everybody knows what to do. I'll tell you a story. There was a, a major star. Clint was directing. And he showed up a half hour late for the scene. Ugh. And he came. He, he got surly with some of the camera crew and some of the grips, some of the people. And on the second day, Clint took him around the back, around the trailers. And when Clint brought him back half an hour later, after that, it was yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and me. And I said to Clint, did you tune him up? What did you do back there? He said, I just told him, we don't act like that on my sets. We don't act. There are no stars on my sets. Everybody's a star. The grip, the cameraman, you know, we came here to all, we all have jobs to do. 
and everybody is to be treated with respect, and, and the guy treated everybody with respect after that. You've got to have guts galore just showing up, showing your ass. I mean, it, it, it sucks on any set when that element approaches, but on a Clint Eastwood set, and, you know, you made the point. Like, uh, no, <laughs> you, you know, we don't do that here. Uh, I was fortunate in, in my career to, to, first of all, I'm a student of show business from day one because mm -hmm. I love it so much. But I was fortunate to work with Sammy Davis Jr., one of the greatest artists ever put on this planet. I was going to sit in the wings and watch him night after night to hang out with him and listen to his stories. I was fortunate to work with Dean Martin. Uh, the shows, uh, I mean, all the artists like Smokey Robinson. This is this is a living legend and Motown great. And these are artists. These are, and I was fortunate to be around professionals and how they approach the job and how they approach the stage. And then to get with Frank Sinatra, the ultimate of them all. The ultimate of all, that the show is the most important thing. You want to party all night? That's fine. Frank never went to bed till the sun came up, whether we're on the road or off the road, and he wants you to hang with him. Right. But not showtime. Showtime, everybody better know their job because he knew his. We don't cheat the people. Mm -hmm. They put their hard-earned dollars down. Frank, I said to him one time, why do we wear tuxedos? He said, Tommy, if we did a show for the king and the queen tomorrow, would we wear a tuxedo? I said, well, yeah. He said, well... That garage mechanic in Detroit and his wife, who's a waitress, who worked all year long to get enough money to buy two tickets for our show, they're just as much royalty as the king and the queen. We do the same show for them we do for the king and the queen. That's Frank Sinatra. I mean, I was fortunate to work around those kind of people. And I want to mention, still standing, my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra by... Tom Dreesen, our guest, and as he mentions Sinatra... You can get it on Amazon, by the way. Tell everybody you can get it on Amazon. And you best believe you can get it on Amazon. On Amazon, and and we want to mention, you know, the man lives it, like, the background behind Tom Dreesen. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, both in their tuxes, ready for... Sammy. I don't see Sammy. I see, I see the three white guys, but I believe Sammy. You know, Sammy's never far. Sammy is never far. Yeah, yeah he's, he was he was just so... I mean, Sammy could sing as good as anybody out there. Sammy could dance better than anybody out there. He could do comedy as good as any comedian. He could do impressions better than any impressionist out there. He could play the piano. He could play the drums. He could play the trumpet. And he did all that. I mean, he was... You know, l let me tell you, the greatest experience I ever... I was with Tim Reed, and we were a comedy team. And we were in Chicago doing this Black Expo. And... Um, and uh, it was, you know, a week of African-American business and culture, but it culminated in, in a big show, in a big arena, about 15,000 people, and the place was mobbed, and, and every act was doing three and four songs, and Tim and I waited in the wings, and if they wanted to strike the stage, they'd get up and move a few minutes. But anyhow, Sammy comes in. Now, Sammy had flown all night long on a, on, on a red eye to come into Chicago to do this show. Four months prior to this show, Sammy had appeared at the White House, President Nixon gave him an award, and Sammy hugged President Nixon, because uh, Sammy hugged stop signs. He hugged everybody. Right, right, right. Was a hugger. She hugged the president and got this award, and, and, and Nixon promised to do something for the black community. And Sammy, the, the picture went on the cover of Jet and the cover of Ebony, and Sammy became persona, persona non grata in the black community, because they were very anti-Nixon. Mm -hmm. Now, Sammy flies in for this. This is four months afterward. Mm -hmm. Sammy's now in front of a all-black audience for the first time mm -hmm. since that picture. Now, we're all in the wings, and we're going, oh, Sammy Davis Jr., everybody's all excited to come over his entourage, and Sammy, and uh, the MC goes out, and he's Sammy Davis Jr., and boos, and cheers, and screams, 
you know, fifteen thousand black people screaming, "Get off the stage, you Uncle Tom, so and so, you white man's N-word and boo," and they were screaming mm -hmm. and and so loud. Sammy turned to George Rhodes, his conductor, and he's trying to get the countdown so that the music might drown out the the boos and the jeers. But they were so deafening. George Rhodes just stood there with the headphones; he couldn't hear. And finally, Sammy would not move. He stayed there, and he stayed there, and it all quieted down. And the MC come back out and said, "Ladies and gentlemen." What is our struggle all about if it isn't about individual freedom? You know, isn't that what our struggle is about if a man wants to be a Democrat, a Republican, a, a Protestant, a Catholic, a Jew? Isn't that what we're fighting about? Individual freedom. The man came 3,800 miles to sing for you. Does he at least deserve to be heard? Mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble. Everybody, he, Sammy went over and changed the sheet music. He, went over, he changed the sheet music. He sang one song, and he got a standing ovation. He sang, I Gotta Be Me. And never before did those lyrics mean what they meant that day. Whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I gotta be me. I'll go it alone if that's how it must be. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. And halfway through the song, we had knots in our stomach thinking this great artist is being booed by his own folks. And now we had knots in our stomach. And now halfway through the song, we're all looking at one another. You see what he's doing? You see what he's doing? He's bringing that crowd back. Mm -hmm. At the end of that song, a standing ovation. A standing ovation. It was like, we still don't believe your politics, but that was a bitch, brother. That was a bitch when you just sit there. And, uh, and if Mike, people do not believe that, it is on YouTube. You can wa I watched that a few weeks ago. It's on YouTube. Watch and, it. And, 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 but I mean, the point of that is, you know what? A lot of artists would have said, hey, you know, Dean would have said, bye fine. He'd have walked out of Frankie. <laughs> Sammy was a street kid. Sammy said, okay, okay, you showed me what you got. Now let me show you what I got. No, he totally turned he around that crowd. He totally turned around that audience. I mean, it's, it's, everybody should watch it. I got to tell you, I've been in show business for you and years. I've seen people take a tough crowd and bring them back after an hour or 40, 45 minutes or half an hour. I've seen people take a, 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 a mediocre crowd. I've never seen anybody take a hostile audience and in one song get a standing ovation. That's the greatest performance I've ever seen in my life. Only Sammy Davis Jr. God bless you, Sammy, wherever you are. He was a wonderful artist. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. Speak, you know, it speaks to, in my opinion, the individuality in every one of us and how we need to embrace that and run with it as opposed to fearing it and looking for normalcy. I think uh, Augmandino said it best, speaking of motivation, in that, you know, there is, there's value in anything that is unique, and anything, the more rare it is, the more valuable it is, and every one of us as human beings, we are unique. There are no two snowflakes or fingerprints alike. Now, my question for you in closing, my last question, I have hundreds, but I'm going to close with this one question. In your unique opinion, as a professional of 51 years in comedy, Johnny Carson, David Letterman, touring with Sammy and Dean and Frank, Tom, in your opinion, what is the best joke you have ever dropped? <laughs> Because here's the thing, sometimes it was at that particular moment that that particular thing worked. 
You know, I when you open for Frank in an arena, there was twenty thousand people out there. I I, I would do twenty thousand people in the audiences all around the country, as well as in Hawaii, we had forty thousand people. So every now and then something would happen that would ignite that that twenty thousand audience and just roared. You know, that, that even Frank in the session room said, "Oh my God, what is what you say?" It was just at the moment. It was something that you seized the moment. You know, of of of, of a thing. So I, I've written a lot of. I've written a thousand clever jokes that. I shouldn't say a thousand clever. I've written a thousand jokes, some very clever, you know, uh, uh, things, you know. But but you but you never know when that moment. First of all, let me tell you this, Kenny or Tony. Do you know what it's like opening for Frank Sinatra in front of twenty thousand people? Let me explain to you. Uh, after my first time of working with him at the Golden Nugget, we went to the Nassau Coliseum. There was twenty thousand people in the audience. Now this is your assignment, Kenny. It's five minutes before showtime. Now they're not. In front of you, they're all around you. You're in the round. You're in a big arena. In the round. There's twenty thousand people all around you. They're behind you. They're to your right, to your left. And I say to you, I say to you, Kenny, or or, or Tony, here's here's what you got to do. I want you to go out there, and for the next forty-five minutes, there's twenty thousand people out there. I want you to stand in the center of that stage, and for forty-five minutes, I want you to hold their attention. Oh, one more thing, Kenny, Tony, I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to. Make them laugh for 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing, guys. I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no special lighting, no special orchestra. Just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing. Not one of them came to see you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Chicago. I worked for DuPont. I was the first black hired by DuPont from a historically black college. Mm -hmm. And uh, I moved to Chicago, and I had been raised in an all-black community, uh, had not had any social contact with white America whatsoever. Um, and so I moved to Chicago, and actually, in, reading, in doing the book, we discovered that Tom was my first white friend. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> and just think, I learned everything I know about white people from Tom. <laughs> How tragic. That's it. That's bad, is it? By the way, that's what you have in common. You learned everything about white people from me, too. <laughs> now, to tell you, uh, to, to tell the young comedians out there to listen to what I'm about to say. Fortunately, by that time, I had done like 30 tonight shows. I worked with Sammy, Turpin, Smokey. I had some, some experience. But here, this was an experience I never had before. This is 20,000 people. I didn't, we didn't have that when I worked there. But here's a, here's a trick I would do every night. I knew better than to go out there and do my A material from Jump Street. You know, open up on my A material. I knew better. Mm. These are 20,000 people. When you walk out there, 3,000 are trying to find their seats. Still wandering. You've got to bring the focus to you as fast as possible to the center stage. Because you can't lose them. You lose them after two or three minutes, you're not going to get them back. you got to get them right now to come to you. So I would walk out on stage and I'd say, when they introduce me, you know, people are, you know, first of all, think of this. The whole arena goes dark and everybody goes, ooh. The orchestra's in the pit, they go, bum, bum, da, da, bum, people, oh! And then the comedy star of our show, Tom Beach, and they go, oh! You know, they thought Frank was coming out, right? I got out on stage, the first thing I'd say is, how many of you out there applaud? I want you to applaud. How many of you out there thought Frank was coming out? Applaud, and they would applaud. 
I'd say, I know just how you feel. I'm a little bit disappointed myself. You know? Now, the first joke was on me. I put that joke on me. Now, I'm in the round. I'd say, how many of you out there are in this arena for your very first time applaud? And they would applaud. I didn't say raise your hand. I said applaud. <laughs> how many of you out there are in this arena for your very first time applaud? They'd applaud. Say, how many of you out there are seeing Frank Sinatra live your very first time? They would applaud. I'd say, how many of you out there aren't wearing any underwear? Applaud. Not they'd applaud. Silly joke, but I talk, you react. I talk, you react. I'm going all around the arena. I talk, you react. I'm bringing this focus to me. And I finally, after all of that, now I got, now they're coming to me. I told them, I didn't say raise your hand, I said applaud. I talk, you react. I talk, you react. I'm bringing them to me. And then I would do my first joke about the local area. I'd have a joke about the local area. And I had two or three of those kind of jokes about the local area. And then I would roll into my A material. But I knew if you went out there and from jump seat trying to do it, you'd lose them. You've got to get them to you. you know, and, and, and it worked. It worked, you know, 45, 50 cities a year. Wow. So you you combined comedy with humility with um, motivational speaking techniques, if you will, in that, you know, uh, Tony Robbins, for example, if you're in agreement, say I. I. But your approach was applaud. You're literally in the first three to five minutes training your audience for a 45-minute set. It's brilliant. Audiences are like children. They'll take, they'll go wherever you want them to go. You, you take charge. You're in charge out there. You know, don't let the audience ever get in charge with you. You're in charge out there. You know. Um, uh, you know, it's it's it, 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 you know you're in command here. That's what the standard community is all about. We take we take we take command and, and we roll from there. Yeah, it's it's it, you know anyhow. It's the, leadership. Yeah. Well, again, you know, you you, you it's take command. You're not going to let them take that from you. You know, Sammy Davis Jr. The first time I worked in Las Vegas was with Sammy at Caesar's Palace. Uh, we went to rehearsal, and I've never been in Las Vegas before. And Sammy took me there to Caesar's and made sure my name was on the marquee real big. God bless me. Because a lot of opening acts, a lot of big stars, they put their names so big up there, you, there wasn't room to park your car in the parking Because the <laughs> <laughs> was the egos were so big. But but Sammy insisted they give me marquee because he said, Tommy, after this, whoever you work with, they'll have to give you the same percentage of billing, you know. But Sammy went in there and I, we did rehearsal. Now, she's just palace. Comedians hated it. All com- comedians love low seatings. Because laughter is sound. It hits a seating and comes at you. You know, I love the Desert Inn. I love the Sands Hotel. I love the Riviera. I love the Golden Nugget. Those are great comedy rooms. I was going to... Jim Grant was stuff. The uh, Belly Man was stuff. You know, all these other hotels. But Caesars had a high seating. It was a horrible, uh, just a, a tough comedy room. And they served food in those days. And if people are eating food. And the opening act had to go out where dinner was going on. Waiters and waitresses were trying to get food out of the room and in the room. And, and people are eating. And it was a horrible experience for a comedian. That's what makes the difference. I mean, I mean, it really, just really quick. I mean, like when I hear comedians discuss, that's a great room. That's a great room. It doesn't have to do a lot. Not so much with the people in the room, but just how how, how it's set up. I mean, as far as oh yeah, okay. well, you know, I can walk into a room. Good comedians can walk in a room and say, "I'm gonna die here. This ain't gonna work." You can see this ain't gonna work. This layout. You know, you need people shoulder to shoulder. 
so that your electricity, when you're on stage, your electricity, your energy, if you're a juggler or a singer or a comedian, your energy is going out from here to you, all the way through that crowd and back up to you, all the way through that crowd and back up to you, all the way through that crowd and back up to you, oh, and it's your timing and your rhythm, and that's the energy that you're sending out and the energy coming back. Now, if you put five people off to the right, six people to the left, and four in the back, you just took a scissors and cut a, cut a line through that circuit that we need, you know. And that's why you need people shoulder to shoulder, and and, and, uh, and that's why you have low seating, laughter, sound. It hits you and comes back at it hits the seating and comes back at you. All of that works with logistics, you know. Uh, that's that's crucial. Now, what Sammy did, knowing that this would be tough for me, and it's my first time in Vegas, and all the critics are there. The conductor at that time, I mean, the entertainment director was called Matt Brandywine. He said, "Tommy, you'll do 20 minutes, and Sammy will do an hour and 10." Sammy said, "No, Matt." This is Tommy's first time in Las Vegas, so he needs a score. If Ooh. he scores, they'll bring him back. Oh. He said, I'll come out, and I'll sing three or four songs, and then I'll bring Tommy out. And Tommy, you do whatever you want when you feel you've got him. 25 minutes, I don't care. He said, I'll come back and make up the rest time. I said, okay, now, what a break. Sammy, the waiters and waitresses, their job is to get that food the hell out of there when the headliner comes out. Sammy would come out first, and when Sammy came out first, you know, Waiters and waitresses, they were taking food away from people that hadn't even started eating yet. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know? Now, Sammy would sing like three or four songs. Now the room is cleared. All the waiters and waitresses are out of the room. And he's got them in the palm of his hand. And then he would bring me up. He said, ladies and gentlemen, you've stuck with me through the years. My audiences. He said, I feel like audiences are family. You're with me in the good times and the bad times. When you have friends like that and family, you want to do something for them. Like maybe bring them a gift. I got a gift for you. I saw this kid on my show, Sammy and Company, and you're gonna, and that's how he brought me out every night. You know, and, 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 and I would walk out and I'd say, all my life I dreamed, my comedy life I dreamed that one day I'd be able to work Las Vegas. And I dreamed that it would be Caesar's Palace, but I never dreamed that Sammy Davis Jr. would be my opening act. <laughs> and Sammy would love it, the audience would love it. See. <laughs> singer of all time. 
I'm sitting at his home one night with Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, who are all in the back in the backyard in, in French compound, and we're all staying up late. And it's Clint Eastwood, it's Kirk Douglas, it's Gregory Peck, it's um, um, uh, Jack Lemmon. Oh, Jack Lemmon! Jack Lemmon! Oh, Jack Lemmon! Jack Lemmon! And Robert Wagner, and they're all talking about acting, and I'm sitting around. These, I'm like, I'm, I'm so happy to be like a fly in the wall. These are people I saw in the Harvey Theater when I was a little boy growing up. Oh. These are the stars, and, and they're all just wonderful people, but they're talking, acting, and directing, and I noticed the reverence they were showing to Frank. And I was curious, because I studied acting in Chicago, and I studied acting out here in L.A., and I was curious, you know, because everybody likes to brag who they studied with. You know, I was with Stella Adler or whoever. Right. And I said, I was curious about who Frank said. I said, Frank, did you study acting? And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm. Oh. My arm. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. Mm. This fellow learned acting wow. by Gregory Peck. Wow. So what people forget is, when you gave Frank Sinatra a song, it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? Frank would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in a bar whose woman left him, and he's never going to find love again. And you felt that. You felt that pain. There's a song. If ever you're in a bar and your woman left you, and it's late, it's early in the morning, there's a song called If You Go Away that Frank sings. If you go away, if, if you sit to the end of that song, you put a gun in your mouth and I'm so Because this guy, he frames that. Now, no one ever interpreted lyrics like him because Charlton Heston once said, to watch Frank Sinatra sing a song is like watching a four-minute movie. Mm. He was a brilliant actor, and you feel that. And the joy of his songs. You know, the joy of his songs. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, well, I mean I, oh, the... there was never an artist like Frank Sinatra ever. He, 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 it's hard to describe how complex a human being he was, but he was an incredible artist. This is a man, guys, this guy sold out. 20,000 seater minutes till he died. This guy sold out in Japan at age 78. What English speaking singing artist do you know that sells out in Japan when you're sure? He sold out in Moscow. He sold out all around the world. In Brazil, many years ago, 175,000 people came to see him. 175,000. No single artist, maybe a rock group, but right. no single artist ever accomplished that. He created more excitement walking to the microphone every night when he first came up on stage than most people create with the whole act. He was, he was special, boy. He was really, really special. You know, you talk about his acting. I mean, the, the man with the golden arm. Uh, uh, he should have won the Academy. He could have won that too. Exactly. Oh man. I think it was only because he won it from *Hurry to Eternity*. Yeah. And by the way, guys, I'll give you a nice little lesson and show this to Frank Tom. He told me, you know, first of all, when he did a movie from Harry Returner, he was on his ass. His career was on its ass. He got $8,000 for doing that movie, but it turned his whole life around. He won the Academy Award. But he told me one time, he said, Tommy, there was a time, we were sitting on talking late at night. He said, Tommy, there was a time when I was as hot as I could be. I was so hot, Tommy, he said, I could pick up the phone and call any recording company in the world, and they'd take my call. I could call any agent in the world, they'd take my call. He said, Tom... I could call the President of the United States, and he'd take my call. He said, and then I got cold. I got really cold. And then I couldn't get anybody to take my call. He said, I don't care who I, I couldn't get anyone to take my call. And that went on for a couple of years. He said, and then I got hot again. And then I got real hot. He said, and then I was out, I'd be out socially, and I'd be at some function, and I'd look across the room, and there's that guy that wouldn't take my call. And I would look across the room at him, and he couldn't look me in the eye. He put his head down on the floor. 
He said, but he didn't understand now that I understood. We're in show business. That's two words, show and business. I couldn't do business for him. That's why he didn't take my call. He said, it's my fault. I thought we were friends. That is the most moving line that he ever talked because we do that in our business. Yeah. We think that guy likes us because we're, and he's my friend. And then all of a sudden, you don't know who he is anymore because you can't bring him money. You can't make money for him. You know, and that's what I say to young comedians all the time. You know, you want to manage, you want to agent. You know, when you can make money for them, you're a product like Right Guard or 7-Up. You know, when you can start making money, they're going to start representing you. If you can't make money for them, it makes no sense. That's, look how funny you think you are. They look over and they say, can I make money with this act? And if you can't, then how can I represent them? Because if I can't make money, what's the point? But it's a business, is my point. Frank said the greatest line, it's my fault. I thought we were friends. That's a painful, truthful line. And again, I say, that is apropos. It's not friend business. It is, in fact, show business. It is. You, being on our show, has hopefully upped our business, in my opinion. I personally want to thank you for taking the time, Tom, to uh, help us with our Hollywood hustle. You have imparted 51 years of wisdom in under an hour and a half, and we could go another 17 hours and not be bored. That was now. You know, guys, I was glad to do it. I got to run now. I was really glad to do it. You could probably cut this show up into several factions, you know, motivation, French. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sam, you cut it into different. We got this. We will will take very good care of you in this show and, and the knowledge. Thank you very much, Tom. Let everybody know, Amazon.com, I, I would like them to read my book, especially folks back home, back in the Scoggoland area, because it's so much about uh, Chicago and starting out there, and, and it's getting great reviews on Amazon, but at Amazon.com, and, and they'll get it to your house in two days. They're really fantastic, this, this organization. <laughs> well, now, look, we love Amazon, too, and uh, over these last few months, uh, they have taken a lot of money from me, so they could take a little more getting some getting your book. Absolutely. And that is Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra by Tom Dreesen, available on Amazon. Get a copy, everyone, worth your read, worth your time. We love Tom Dreesen. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. And actually, the fourth time we ever appeared on stage, it was our fourth time, a guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face. And, yeah, and, and then tried to beat me after death. Yeah. You know, uh, he was a huge man. He about outweighed us about 100 pounds. And I, I remember in the struggle, I, I grabbed a full bottle of ketchup, and I hit him over the head. Bam! And he didn't recognize the blow whatsoever. Really? I said to myself, Tom's really in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, then the best part is, is, now he's all scarred up and I'm all beat up. I thought I was never going to breathe again. It was a really a brutal battle. And I boxed him. I was in the service, so I knew a little bit, but this guy was so outweighed me. Yeah. We get in the car, and I can hardly breathe, and, and Tim's all scarred up. We get in the car, we start to drive away, and Tim looked at me, and he said, welcome to show business. Yeah. <laughs> Yes.
Tony Brown and Kenny Smooth. Goodbye, everybody.